Good morning. Father, right now, as we look at your word, we ask that you would speak into us. Holy Spirit, we have, have over and over declared that you are welcome here today, and we, we reiterate that right now, and we're asking that you would, would have your way in our hearts and our minds, direct us, guide us by your word, that we might be uh, walking in the things that you want us to. We trust you to do that because you're faithful. Amen. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 9. I want to uh, start out by pointing out something that I think is, is pretty important here. The, up until this time, the single biggest threat to the fledgling church is Saul of Tarsus. Very first verse, Saul's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's, he's well past the live and let live stage. This is not a, a mild case of discontent. Um, he wants to take them out of the picture. So he's the, the biggest threat to the church. And what happens? God sovereignly takes that threat away. Now don't misunderstand. I'm pretty confident that there was a lot of prayers that went into that, all right? But the fact is that God sovereignly moved right there. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? If God wants to remove the opposition, he is capable of doing that. And I am saying that today because there are some of you here who are worried about the future. And I'm telling you, God's got this. I'm not saying he's always going to take the opposition out of the way. Don't misunderstand. But I am saying he is capable of it. And regardless of what happens, he's still got us. I want us to understand that we have a big God and he's there. All right, so Saul is on his way to, to Damascus, and, and let me offer another thing that I think is kind of important here, and that is that, that on their own, the Pharisees didn't have um, any kind of authority. Saul couldn't just go in and start arresting people on his own. He had to get permission. He had to get the, the, the official uh, letters, if you will, from the high priest. Now, it was Saul's idea. It says he asked for the letters, all right? So, so that they're, that, that's, that's important to understand. Um, and he, he gets letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus technically is outside of the, the current borders at that point of Israel, and, uh, but, but there's synagogues, it's multiple, there's more than one, so there's clearly a strong Jewish influence there. And the, the high priest, uh, according to the, the, the historian Josephus, the high priest had lots of influence in the, the, the Jewish culture all over wherever the Jews were. So think of like the, the Pope and Roman Catholics, wherever they are, he's still the, the guy, all right? So, so the high priest, the guy, gives letters to Saul saying go. And this is a win-win for the, the high priest because here's this, this crazy religious zealot guy that wants to wipe out these nasty Christians and he gets rid of these nasty Christians by giving them these letters. So it's a, it's a, it's a great thing for the high priest. So, so Saul is on his way to Damascus um, to get rid of those followers of Jesus. And, and let me tell you something else that I found as I was studying for this that I found pretty interesting. There was a, a type of Jewish meditation during Saul's time um, that it, it involved a, a focused contemplation on Ezekiel chapter one, the, the vision that, that Ezekiel has there. And that vision, if you read it, I'm going to admit, it's a little bit strange, all right? There's these four four-faced creatures, there's some, some wheel things that, 
you know, some commentators say it like, kind of sounds like a chariot. Others say it's a, a wheel within a wheel, like a, like a, a gyroscope kind of idea. And, and Ezekiel describes the wheels um, as having eyes all around the rims. All right, that's a little bizarre. And, and then, and then he, you know, finally gets to the point where there's this dome um, and a rainbow kind of thing and a throne that, that's like a, a jewel. And so what they would do is they would meditate on that vision with the hope that they're going to get what Ezekiel got, that they get to see the Lord, they get to see the glory of God, that by prayer and fasting and holiness and, and that meditation on their own, that they would get to see this. And, 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 and um, let me just read you a few of the verses that, that are there in Ezekiel 1. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And, the do and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. And it goes on from there. So, so, so the goal of meditating on, and there's more before that, but the goal of meditating on this, this section of scripture was that the hope was that the, the meditator, the person doing the meditating, would, would get to that point where they would actually see the Lord, to see the glory of, of God and, and um, see what Ezekiel saw. So it was apparently a pretty common thing for very devout Jews, people like Pharisees, for example, to do this. And I thought it was interesting that there are some scholars who think that perhaps, and I, again, this is just speculation, but bear with me here, that there are some scholars that think that maybe that's what Saul was doing as he was going to Damascus. Uh, he, they, they, he doesn't have to be really paying attention. He's got other people with him. They could be guiding his horse. So, so again, just bear with me for a second. Think about this. What if that's what he was doing? What, what, if, what if he's riding along on his horse, being led by others, and he's thinking about those verses, and he's trying to imagine in his mind, he's trying to imagine the wheels and the, the, the creatures and, and all that's happening there, the, the, the dome, the rainbow, and then all of a sudden, there's this bright light, just like Ezekiel saw, only... Only this is no longer his imagination. This is actual, real life, sun-like, bright light. And in that bright light, he starts to see the form of a person. And that's the, that's the goal of what the, the whole idea of meditating on this was, was to see the Lord. And it starts to come into focus. And he, the face comes into focus. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. Try to imagine, again, it's just speculation, all right? But, but what if that's what happened? But even if it's not, what was going on in Saul's mind at that point? He must have experienced terror and shame and awe and glory all at the same time. Years later, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 about the glory of God in the face of Jesus the Messiah. The glory of God in the face of Jesus the Messiah. What must have it been like for this brilliant man, highly educated, the, the rising star of the Pharisee sect, if you will, the guy who is so zealous 
for the glory and honor of God that he's persecuting, even killing these imposters, these fakes, these charlatans. What must have been like to suddenly realize that everything that he had been so confidently doing was all wrong? I can't imagine what was going on in Saul's mind at that point. He must have experienced pain and confusion, but at the same time, I'm sure there was all of a sudden a clarity. N.T. Wright said it like this, it confirmed everything Saul had been taught, it overturned everything he had been taught. The law and the prophets had come true, the law and the prophets had been torn to pieces and put back together in a totally new way. It showed him that the God he had loved from childhood, the God for whose glory he had been so righteously indignant, the God whose name and for whose honor he was busy rounding up those who were declaring that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah, this Jesus who had led Israel astray with his magic tricks and false prophecy about the temple, this Jesus who the Romans had thankfully crucified, whoever was God's Messiah, it certainly couldn't be him. It showed Saul that the God he had been right to serve, right to study, right to seek in prayer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had done what he always said he would do, but done it in a shocking, scandalous, horrifying way. The God who had always promised to come and rescue his people had done so in person, in the person of Jesus. So there's there's Saul on the ground, blinded by the, the light, And the words ringing in his ears, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What? You've heard me say this before. Saul could have said, no, Jesus, I'm not persecuting you, just your followers. I mean, that's really what he was doing, right? But the, the Lord has so tied himself to his people that he's saying that Saul was persecuting him. The people he's dragging off are the Lord's family, the, the, his, his own extended self, if you will. Try to, try to wrap your eye, mind around that idea from Saul's perspective. He, at that point, I don't think he knew up from down. So they took him by the hand, took him into Damascus, found him lodging. You know, this, this whole scene has, is often referred to as, as Saul's conversion, Right? But I think from Saul's perspective, it was probably more like a a volcano eruption or tornado and a tidal wave all harnessed together in one big, huge, crazy experience. He was undone. And then comes the scene with Ananias. And and just to be clear, this is not the same Ananias that got zapped in chapter 5. All right, I just want to make sure that we're together on that. And Ananias knew why Saul was there. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The news about Saul had clearly made it to Damascus. I've heard from many. So Ananias clearly knew what was going on. But I want you to try to imagine that this is you instead of Ananias. You're being asked to go pray for this persecutor guy. And you know he has, he has official documents, legal papers saying he can arrest you. And God's telling you to go. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about the book of Acts is that along with the, the amazing miracles, the great victories, that we also get to see real live people who are struggling with real dilemmas. You know, I think about, if, 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 if this is me, I'm not sure I'd be going, oh, okay, God, I'm, I'm on it. I'm, I'm going right over there. Anybody with me? You understand what I'm saying? 
And, and I don't know that we could say that Ananias here was arguing with God, but that, I think that might be too strong. But I, I think at, at the very least, Ananias is trying to give God some unknown information. Are, are you aware? I don't know about you, but I have done that many times and I have never once seen it sway God. It's not like he's missing some information that I'm able to fill in some blanks for him. Are you with me? No. He's always way, 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 way ahead of anything that I can offer. Always. And then God shows Ananias something that, about Saul that as far as we know, Saul doesn't even know. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel and then God adds, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I have to wonder if that suffering part was put in there to, to kind of console Ananias in this whole thing. I don't know for sure, but it's, it's possible. But, but I want to point out that God was calling Saul for a specific task. He was going to take the, the message, the good news, the, the gospel, to beyond the borders of Israel, if we can say it like that. Oh, he was still going to talk to Jews, but he was going to Gentiles and to kings. This is different. It, it seems odd to me, on the surface at least, that God would, would call a guy who is mired in Jewish culture to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But let, let me explain, and I'm going to kind of take the long way around because I think this is important for us. I want you to think back to something that I said at the very beginning when I was introducing this whole uh, series in the book of Acts. I said this is, the, the book of Acts is less about the disciples and it's actually about Jesus, all right? You remember me saying that, okay? So think about it. Now, you know, I said it back then, but we've seen it over and over. Think about Acts chapter three, Peter and, and John, um, they heal the lame man, and what do they say to the religious leaders? It wasn't us, it was Jesus, right? Remember when Ananias and Sapphira got zapped, what did Peter tell them? You didn't lie to us, you lied to the Lord. Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested because the, the religious leaders are, are jealous of their influence. Who was it that had let them out of prison? It was the Lord. Acts 5.19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Think of Philip in Samaria, Acts 8, that we heard about last week. Lots of miracles going on. Who was it that had granted those miracles? It was the Lord, right? So, so we've seen this, this pattern repeated over and over. Amazing things happening, but it's clearly the Lord that's doing it, the Lord that's at work there. And here again, the Lord uh, knocks Saul to the ground. Who was doing the work? It was the Lord, right? Lord knocks Saul, Saul to the ground, confronts him, gives him a vision. This is not going to be Saul's work. It's going to be the Lord's work through him. You with me? All right, now I want you to remember everything that I just said, that it's the Lord's work. But I also want us to understand that, that God works primarily through human agents. He works through people. And I would suggest that God chose Saul for a specific reason. See, I think the Lord had prepared Saul for that moment. I, I don't think Saul saw it until it happened. There, there have been numerous times where I have felt like God set me up. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden something happens and you're going, oh, that's what all that was for, yeah. And I think, think the same thing happened here. 
See, see, think about it. What would happen if God sent someone who didn't know or even care about Jewish history to the Gentiles or who didn't know about the law or who didn't, didn't understand God's holiness? That wouldn't work. It couldn't work. The primary person that God would send to the Gentiles uh, needed to be steeped in, in the understanding of how important the law was. How else is he going to convey the idea of substitutionary atonement? He's not going to be able to. Well, how, how else could he explain that, that a sinful person cannot live in the presence of a holy God? How could he explain why Jesus really needed to die if he didn't have that background? Let me do it this way. The various writers of the New Testament Gospels come at their writing from a different perspective from each other. So Matthew, for example, makes a big assumption that the people that he's writing to understand uh, Judaism and Jewish culture, all right? Mark makes no such assumption at all. And everything that, about that kind of mentality he explains, in the, uh, in the introduction to the book of Mark, in the ESV, it says this, Mark's audience, largely unfamiliar with Jewish customs, needed to become familiar with such customs in order to understand the coming of Jesus as the culmination of God's work with Israel in the entire world. So, so in the context that we're talking about, it takes somebody like that, like Saul here, to be able to explain those things to the Gentiles in order for them to get it, because otherwise they're not going to fully understand what's going on. So, so think about this. In God's wisdom, he sent a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-Orthodox, Pharisaic Jew to take the, the, the gospel to the Gentiles. And some people say that God doesn't have a sense of humor. And see, on the surface, it sounds crazy. But if you really understand it, it makes perfect sense. All right, we continue on. And I, I love the way Ananias first addresses Saul. He says, brother Saul, part of the family. The family that, that God told Saul he was persecuting, he's now part of it. He's, he's in, if you will. And Ananias recognizes that. And so he calls him brother. And so as part of the family, hands are laid on him. What happens? Scales fall from his eyes. He's able to see. And the next thing that happens is... He's baptized, part of the family, kind of like what we did last week with a couple of people, right? And then he immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. And um, I might add here that we are now nine chapters into the book of Acts, and this is the first time in the book of Acts that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Verse 20, Saul talking, he says, he is the Son of God. Now, I want you to understand that there are two big ways in the Old Testament, Saul's Bible, if you will, that the Son of God is used. One is it's, it's sometimes used um, in a metaphorical sense, talking about all of Israel. So think about when, when God was telling uh, Moses to go to Pharaoh, and God told Moses to say to Pharaoh uh, from Exodus 4, Israel is my firstborn son, I say to you, let my son go. So it's kind of this general understanding of all of Israel as the son of God, all right? But more often, it's used as uh, to refer to uh, the descendant of David who's coming. Uh, Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So this is a specific use of the term, that, that, that person that's coming. But see, the religious leaders of, Je uh, of Saul's day didn't 
see the idea of, of son of God as being literal. It was more of a metaphorical thing in, in their mind. Um, just like calling uh, uh, Israel God's son, same kind of thing. So the Messiah would be sent by God. He would be an emissary commissioned by God, but he's certainly not the son in a literal sense of God. You're with me. And to, to, to the, the, the religious leaders of, of Saul's day, to call yourself or to declare someone as the son of God, that would be blasphemy. You know, that, that's the reason that the, before they took him to Pilate, they asked Jesus directly, are you the son of God? Because if he is, that in their minds is immediate condemnation stuff right there, all right? Or, or, or think about, do you remember when Jesus healed the, the lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath? The end of that story, it says this, John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, making himself equal with God. If Jesus truly is the son of God, then he's equal with God. And Saul knew that. I mean, he likely understood the, the, the Old Testament as well as, or close to as well as anybody else that was alive at that point. And he declared Jesus to be the son of God. And you can bet he's not speaking metaphorically at that point. So, so for, for Saul to say that Jesus was the Messiah, that was a big step. For Saul to say that Jesus was the son of God, that's like he just took a step 500 miles down the road. That, that's huge right there. All right, so, so Saul is there in Damascus for a while. He's preaching about Jesus, and some of the Jews don't like that, and they plot to kill him. And that's not the last time we're going to see that, that idea, even in this chapter, but even beyond that. And, and, and just as an aside here, I think it's interesting that here's this nation that has 10 commands from their God, and one of them is don't kill people, and they seem to have this propensity for killing people. I'm just, just saying, it's just like, yeah, come on. All right, let, and, and let me also add that um, th we don't see the name change from Saul to Paul until chapter 13, so we got a little bit to go, but, but I'm going to kind of be going back and forth depending on the context. Uh, I just want to make sure that, that we understand that's the same person, Saul and Paul. All right, so, all right. So some of the uh, uh, believers there in Damascus, apparently there's some, the, some disagreement as to whether these are, are actually Saul's disciples or just disciples of Jesus in general. But some of them uh, lower Saul in a basket down the side of the wall through a, a hole, a window, um, it says in another place. Now, I'm just going to be candid. Anybody who has reached any level, if I can say, of stature in ministry, you know, if, if you were to ask Paul years later, so, so Paul, how did this international ministry of yours begin? You know, if they started anything like that, most people are going to be going, mm, uh, could we change the subject? Could we talk about something else? But Saul, I'm convinced Saul would look you in the eye and tell you what happened. Think about it like this. Historians place the conversion of Saul at about 36, the year 36, all right? The writing of his second letter to the church at Corinth is about 58. Now, we don't know those dates exactly for sure, but based on historical facts, those seem pretty accurate. So we're talking a little over 20 years difference between the time that he's converted and the time he writes that second letter to the Corinthian church. And in that second letter in chapter 11, 
Paul writes this, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Let me read that again. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. That's what happened. That's how it all started. He's not shying away from it. He's owning it. In fact, he realizes that it demonstrates his weakness, he says. You know, he's, he's perfectly willing to tell other people about it. I think humility is a good characteristic, personally. Seems to me that I read somewhere that God opposes the proud, but... Gives grace to the humble, yeah. Saul had been a proud man. And God, early on, helped him to learn a little bit of humility there. Can you imagine going down in the basket? Yeah. All right, then Saul goes on to Jerusalem where he does not receive the warmest of welcomes. But again, that's, I think it's understandable. You know, I'm, I'm put, putting myself in the place of the apostles. I'm thinking... All right, I find out this guy's coming, this persecutor of the church. I'm likely not going to go running out. Hey, how you doing? You with me? But then Barnabas comes on the scene. We met him back in chapter 4. You remember, we're going to see a lot more of him in, in chapters 11 through 15. But in chapter 4, it tells us that Barnabas is the encourager. And so he... I don't know, he comes alongside us all. Maybe he puts his arm around and says, come on, buddy, let, let's go. He, he knows this is okay. And he goes, takes him to the apostles. And he says, this guy's all right. That was a big step. They finally accept him. But then again, Saul is preaching and he gets the opposition stirred up and people want to kill him. Kind of sounds familiar, right? And so he, he skedaddles out of town. When was the last time you heard the word skedaddle used in a sermon? Okay. And then Luke does this scene change. We've been dialed in on Saul and his story. And now we're going to jump over to Lydda. And that's not a big trip. Uh, it's like the distance of, of here to Fenton. Okay. So it's not huge, but they didn't have cars. Anybody want to walk to Fenton with me tomorrow? That's what I, th oh, wait, did you say yes? Oh, okay. I'm out. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I'd get any takers. Uh, so it's not that far, but it's not like, you know, right down the road or anything like that. Um, but but uh, so, so Peter is actually uh, apparently passing through Lydda is the way that, that it, it, it phrases it. And he encounters a guy named Aeneas. And interestingly, you know, we, we read that there are already believers there. The gospel has, has clearly reached there. He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So the gospel had reached there. And Aeneas was bedridden, paralyzed for, for eight years, apparently. And Peter doesn't make a big production out of this. He simply says, arise and make your bed. Which, by the way, is what we used to say to our kids when they were little. So that is scriptural for you young parents here. Okay, good. Um, and, and, and apparently the word got out and lots of people heard about it. And they were amazed. They were, they, they were drawn to the Lord as a result. Um, I... I'd like to know all the specifics that happened there. I'd like to, to see the, the stories of people that were converted. And I think maybe someday on the other side we're going to, but it's one of those, again, one of those times that in Scripture just doesn't give us all as much information as I'd like. And then there, there's another scene change. 
uh, and, and uh, we get transported to Joppa. That's another 10 miles further west, away from Jerusalem, if you will, from Lydda. And we're actually, we're told that while Peter is still in Lydda, that he gets word, hey, you need to come over here to, to, to Joppa, if you would. And, and there, Peter finds the story of Dorcas or Tabitha. Uh, Dorcas, by the way, is Greek for gazelle. Uh, Tabitha means the same thing in Aramaic. And she's helped lots of people, and, and, and they kind of show him hey, check out this sweater that Dorcas made for me or maybe this tunic that, that, that she, she did for me. So, so this Dorcas, this Tabitha was apparently a, a giver. She was a servant. She was a helper. A, seems like a seamstress. And again, there in Joppa, there's a Christian community and Dorcas was apparently a, a, a stalwart part of it, which is why they asked Peter to come. And it would appear that Peter learned well from Jesus. Hey, if you got an open door, Go through it. And so he did. And he went into the, the room and he prayed very, I mean, just like he, he prays and then he speaks just very matter-of-factly, Tabitha, arise. And she does. And I get the impression, it's kind of like what, what Dave Martin said last week about listening to what Holy Spirit says and do it. Just go for it. So, so let me make this practical for you. What does this mean, these healings of Aeneas and Dorcas? What do they mean for us today? Well, let me tell you a couple of stories that uh, I came across. One was a woman named Kathleen, and she said she had a, a work colleague who was having neck issues. The, her neck was swollen. She was apparently not able to, to sleep very well. And one day, Kathleen felt like Holy Spirit was prompting her to pray for her colleague. And Kathleen said that she was nervous, she was reluctant, she wasn't really sure she was ready to pray, but Holy Spirit kept after her, and she finally asked the woman if she could pray for her, and Kathleen said she was actually surprised that the woman said yes. And Kathleen wrote this, I prayed for healing of the pain in her neck and for her to be able to sleep well that night. The next day I asked her how she felt, and she told me her neck was better, and she was able to sleep for more than eight hours. Apparently, this is just an everyday gal with a coworker that has some physical discomfort, and Holy Spirit says, hey, pray. And something happens. Let me tell you another story. This one's a, a woman named Donna who lives in Denver. Donna was on a mission trip a few years ago to, uh, to Ecuador. And she was having breakfast, just finished breakfast, with five members of her team in the hotel where they were staying. And they, they heard this screaming and crying from outside. And it kept going on. And finally Donna said, hey, we need to, we need to go out and check this out, see what's going on. And they went out to the alley behind the hotel and there's a woman collapsed. She's the one that's screaming and crying and just down a little ways from them, there is a man holding a baby, standing perfectly still. And Donna said she knew immediately that the baby belonged to this woman and that the baby had just died. And Donna wrote this. My immediate thought was the memory that I had lost a child to death. My daughter had been murdered and I couldn't help her when she died. But in that moment, standing in Ecuador, I declared, today this mom will not lose her baby. Sarah and Raisha from our mission team ran and began praying for the distraught mother. I ran over to the man holding the baby. I wrapped one arm around his back and the other around the baby and I began to plead with God for his life. I looked at his little face, fully expecting to see him come back to life, but nothing happened. 
I was about to close his eyes with my fingers when the Holy Spirit of the Lord clearly said to me, you only close the eyes of a dead person. I realized the Lord was telling me the next words I, would, I spoke would be life or death. I began kissing the baby's face and told him, I love you and Jesus Christ loves you and your mother is waiting for you. Now blink. His eyes closed and then opened, but it was not a real blink. Suddenly the Holy Spirit filled up my chest with his power and reminded me of the Lord's promises. Holy Spirit said, you have a choice. As a believer in Jesus, Jesus gave you his authority to do this. The works that I do, you shall do also. Nothing is impossible with God. Speak to the mountain. So you can close his eyes and give him up to death or you can speak life back into him. With that, I immediately commanded the baby, you blink now in the name of Jesus. He blinked two times. His belly and chest began to gurgle and saliva came out of his mouth onto the man's shoulder. Suzanne, another team member who had been standing next to me quietly praying in the spirit with her hand on the baby's back said quietly, he's breathing, he's breathing. I called out to my teammates, Sarah and Rasha, tell the mom he's okay. It was just moments later that a police car came and picked up the family to take the baby to the hospital and they were gone, but it was later that afternoon that the family came back to find the to the hotel to find the strangers from America that had prayed because they wanted them to see that their baby boy was alive. That night, that same evening, they were going to the that team was going to minister to church, and the family went along and gave their testimony that their son had been raised from the dead that morning. And Donna wrote this. Our mission team then called for anyone in need of healing to come up to the front of the church and Jesus would heal the people tonight too. 40 people responded. 30 were instantly and miraculously healed. People who were blind, deaf, lame, arthritic, epileptic, heart trouble, neurosis, diabetes, severe dog bites, painful fungal growth on both feet, instantly healed right before the eyes of all the people. Lumps and cysts disappeared underneath our hands as we prayed. Okay, so why am I telling you these two stories? One from Kathleen, one from Donna, people that we, we don't know, have never heard of, because that's what we are supposed to be doing. Greater works than these, right? Like Peter in Lydda and Joppa. I remember interviewing a woman when we were in Estonia researching for the book, The Great Soviet Awakening. She had come into a saving relationship with the Lord during that revival. And it was shortly after that she, someone gave her a Bible. She had never had a Bible before in her life. She only had seen them from a distance. And as she read through the Gospels, she, she's, she's telling me this. She's reflecting back something that happened 35 years before. But she said that um, as, she, as she read and saw what was going on, she didn't really think much of it at the time because the two seemed the same. You know, as she read in the Bible about blind people seeing, about lame people walking. Those were the things that she was seeing there. And she thought it was just normal stuff. It was the way it was supposed to happen. I think it is. And maybe it could be if we stepped out more like Kathleen and Donna did. All right, and before we finish, I want to insert one more thing here that, that really plays into all of this. I think it's important. Late in the book of Acts, um, Paul is arrested and he's given the opportunity to speak to this crowd that is in an uproar because of him. And in the midst of what he says, he says he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. 
you remember, Gamaliel was the guy that kind of defended, if you will, Peter and John when they were before the Sanhedrin, okay? I did a little research on this Gamaliel guy, and I found a couple of things. One, Gamaliel was so respected that he was the first to be called Rabban, a title higher than that of rabbi. And also Gamaliel's reputation as one of the greatest teachers in the annals of Judaism, one of the greatest teachers in the annals of Judaism, however, remains untarnished and is perhaps best exemplified in Mishtota 9.15. Since Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. So, so this guy, who is seen as one of the greatest teachers of all time in, uh, in Judaism, is the guy who trained Saul. You with me? In his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul said, I'm advancing in Judaism beyond I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So, so here's Saul. He's this highly educated guy. He, he's, he's a brilliant man. He's zealous. He's articulate. He's, he's persuasive. And, and the first 30 verses of this chapter are all zeroed in on Saul's story, what, what he's doing, what's going on here. And then there's this scene change. And we get to focus on somebody else. We get to focus on Peter. And what do we know about Peter? Peter was a fisherman. He was not highly educated. You know, when I was in the school of ministries, our, our Greek professor told us that one of the most difficult things he ever had to do was to translate Peter's writings from Greek into English because Peter was not the brilliant, highly educated guy that Paul was. He was a fisherman. And, and so we've got this, this brilliant, articulate, highly educated Paul and we've got Peter. And we see them juxtaposed, close together in writing at least, and, and they couldn't be much more different. And yet God is working through both of them in amazing ways. And as we look at the, 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 this chapter of Acts, Acts 9, we get to meet some other people. We get to meet Aeneas and we get to meet Dorcas or Tabitha. We don't know a lot about them. You know, if you do a word search on them, you're going to find this is the only place that either of them are mentioned. But they both end up with these amazing testimonies and people came into the kingdom as a result of what happened with them. Think about other people that, that we have met along the way in our study in the book of Acts. Think about Philip, who was, who was chosen to wait on tables, and then he goes on to become this amazing evangelist. Or, or, or think about Barnabas, the guy that introduces Saul to the apostles. I, honestly, I think it's possible, I honestly think it's probable that Saul would not have been accepted by the apostles if it wasn't for Barnabas. So, so we've seen this amazing panoply of people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life. And I think that should give us encouragement because there is no one profile, one type of person that God chooses to work through. He works through people who work in stores, or who are engineers, or who teach kids, or who are retired, or work in construction, or work in factories, or deliver pizza, or who work with unwed mothers, or who work in the medical profession, or who are stay-at-home moms, or kids who go to school, or kids who are homeschooled. 
any number of possibilities. God is limitless in who he will work through. So I want to challenge us today. We're reading through true history of the church. We're reading about how the Messiah himself worked through people. And my Bible says that Jesus doesn't change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever, right? Doesn't make any difference. He's the same. And he wants to work through you, just like he did all those other people. Let's pray. Lord, today, as we uh, have looked at this section of Scripture, I don't know about anybody else here, but I'm challenged. I'm challenged by Saul, who totally changed everything and willingly followed you fully and completely. I'm challenged, challenged by Ananias, who maybe somewhat reluctantly, but it, did what you asked him to do, even, even though it, it could have caused him pain or hurt. And I'm challenged by Barnabas. He didn't have to go to bat for Saul, but he did because it was the right thing to do. And I'm challenged by Peter, who just spoke the word and people were healed. I'm challenged by Aeneas and Dorcas and even Kathleen and Donna. Lord, you, you work through all different kinds of people. And Lord, today, we as your people in this place recommit to you asking that you would work through us we want to be those vessels that Holy Spirit you use, you work through, you, you cause change through. And so we're inviting you. Have your way. Bring your life through us because of your faithfulness. Amen. Amen.